0: These are all social issues, but they're all very much issues that affect the value of the company.
1: Welcome to ANZ Board Minutes on Blue Notes. Alana Atlas joined ANZ's board as an independent, non-executive director in September 2014 and has a strong background in finance, law and community. Recently, Atlas sat down with Blue Notes Managing Editor Andrew Cornell to discuss the role of boards, the golden years of banking and how to meet the changing values of shareholders. Thank you very much for joining us, Alana, as as one of our directors in our Board Matters series on Blue Notes. And really, I wonder if we could, because you've had an interesting career. Um, You're from Perth, which is not that unusual in its own right, but (laughs) you're from Perth. You've spent a lot of your time now in the eastern states, but you trained as a lawyer. Then you went into the banking industry with Westpac as an executive, and now you've moved into not just a sort of non-executive director role, but across the arts, not-for-profits, corporate entities. So uh, did you plan your career? Did you sort of think about this?
0: The reality is no, um, I didn't. But I think the key has been really to take opportunity and take risks along the way. So when I moved from general counsel at Westpac into the HR role at Westpac, I think most of my legal colleagues thought I was crazy but that was a risk to a certain extent but also a passion so that opportunity was one that I really wanted to take
1: and that that passion that was then um, for the sort of human side of of companies to work more with people rather than with the law
0: correct Yeah. yeah so I'd always at at Mallison's when I was a partner there. I'd always been involved in the people side of that business. Clearly, in a law firm, that's everything to a law firm. And so having the opportunity at Westpac to really, I suppose, be an advocate for, at that point, 40,000 people was really a privilege.
1: Now, if I've got this right, and my memory is not that great, but I think you, you went into Westpac from Mallison's, and partly because Reg Barrett, was a mentor of yours who had gone the other way almost
0: well well it's interesting um reg had been a mentor by an absolutely but um i took over as general counsel at westpac from betty mcnee who'd been a freehills a partner actually before she'd joined westpac but certainly reg had worked with me as a partner at mallison's and i'd known him for many years when he was a lawyer at Allen's as well.
1: And was banking something that, again, it attracted you in advance or was that just where the opportunity had come to move into the corporate well, world? Well,
0: actually, I wasn't a banking lawyer. I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. Um, but it, wasn't, it was a wonderful opportunity. Also, uh, David Morgan was CEO of Westpac at the time and it was a very innovative organisation and uh, I thought it really offered me significant opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I was very keen to be part of it.
1: And did it, because um, you, in the period, you're really there in the golden yes, years yes. of banking, you know, because deregulation was still flowing through, yes. the economy was really steaming along, Australian banks were trying to do a, a lot. In, that period of banking now is, is sort of turning around. We've had the Royal Commission, but equally yep. economies are not growing so fast. Mm-hmm. How do you perceive that period in banking and now that you're a director at ANZ?
0: Well, I, I tend to agree that they were golden years. Um, perhaps when you're in the melee of, of business, it doesn't always feel that way. And obviously, we had our fair few challenges. But there's no question that the current low growth environment that we're operating in makes makes it more challenging. It's different. But obviously, there are other opportunities that, for example, technology provides us to really do things differently. So I think what I saw in those days was an evolution of banking. Banking changed significantly. Um, I was part of the acquisition by Westpac of BT going into into wealth management. Life goes in circles, Mm. obviously. And and that was significantly different. Also, I was um, at a time when people were thinking about Asian expansion as well. So I think with every era it brings its new challenges and change and I think that's what we're about at the moment and it's about seeing what the opportunities are that the current environment provides us.
1: Do you think the change at the moment is more radical with the disruption from technology and regulation and sort of non-bank competitors or, again, is this sort of cycles that you've been through? Uh,
0: I think it is cycles um, but I think it is more radical just because everything is so much faster. Mm. The change is just coming so much more, so much faster, which means, means that I think incumbency was a huge strength. It's not nearly as much of a strength now.
1: And if we think about your role on on the, not just the ANZ board, but mm-hmm. you're on um, Coca-Cola, Amateur as chair, um, you're on some some quite interesting other boards. Do boards have to act a lot faster than traditionally as well, and and perhaps act differently?
0: I do think boards management companies have to act a lot faster and boards absolutely need to be part of that. I think the challenges for boards at the moment is that there's no question the environment uh, creates risk aversion. So, frankly, because of the need for speed, uh, you probably would prefer not to be as risk averse as I think the current environment is forcing boards to be. So that's, that's a challenge that boards need to meet. As well, I think boards are struggling with this notion about where does their role and management's role begin, and I think boards need to constantly recalibrate that. Obviously, in the financial services sector, we are highly regulated, and the regulators seem to want us to be perhaps more involved with management than we think we should be to just satisfactorily perform our role. So, I mean, that's part of what we're paid to do. So it's a constant calibration of those issues.
1: And it's an interesting challenge because going back through sort of, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, there's been constant debates about how governance needs to be structured and, and what a high-performing board looks like and whether that's the skills mix. But as far as the research goes, you know, there's some support that the chairman should be independent to the chief executive, which is different mm-hmm. to a lot of the US models. Yeah. But a lot of the time it, it seems to boil down to good boards are boards that talk to one another and function well and are aware of what's going on. Yeah. There, there's no sort of prescription for how a good board works. What's your sense I, of...
0: I agree with that completely. So I think the rules of governance are as well-formed and as clear as you would like them to be and have constantly, continually evolved. But at the end of the day, you still have calamities. Um, and I agree with you. It's entirely as a result, I think, of the culture on the board, the way that people get on together, uh, their purpose, the alignment with management, the relationship with the, between the chairman and the CEO. They're the things that matter. And frankly, they're the things, I think, that add value to shareholders as well.
1: And you're a chairman yourself, but you're also on these other boards. How deeply do you think the board should go into management? How do you draw that distinction between which is... Well,
0: I think you can't generalise. And so, for example, in financial services, our regulators are requiring us in in relation to certain matters to go quite deeply into management uh, and be accountable for a number of things that I think... um, if you're ordinarily thinking about the role of boards, you wouldn't expect it to happen. So I think it is very much on a case-by-case basis, dependent on the industry, the sector, the company
1: and the issue. One of the, the other issues that's very live at the moment is boards are agents for the shareholders. Mm-hmm. What are companies doing? And on the one hand, we have this sort of view that, that comes from Milton Friedman originally but been has been sort of quite commonly bandied about that companies' jobs is to create... Profits for shareholders, but we've just seen this debate play out a lot more widely in the business roundtable in the U.S. They said, "Well, actually, no. Companies are not just there to make profits for shareholders. They have a social role to play as well. They have a much broader stakeholder base: their employees, the communities in which they work." How do you, as a board, you know, and as a chairman and as a director, how do you think about the social role? Of companies? And is it all about shareholders?
0: It's an interesting discussion, no question. But I think, you know, for boards, it's reasonably clear. So the law requires us to act in the best interests of the company and shareholders. We operate on the basis that we're acting in the long-term interests of shareholders. And to do that, appropriately, you need to take into account all stakeholders, which means that you do need to take into account customers, employees, the community, and that's particularly the case today um, in considering what's in the long-term interests of shareholders. So, boards do and must take all those matters into account. So, for example, for a Coca-Cola Ametal, clearly it's important for the board to consider all matters to do with waste, recycling, plastic... Obesity. These are all social issues, but they're all very much issues that affect the value of the company. So I think, in a sense, boards have understood that and manage it pretty effectively. So, boards, when considering these issues, I think do consider them in the context of what their company does and where it's appropriate for them to take a stand. Having said that though, I think in terms of the general discussion, there is an issue about accountability of companies. So for companies to wade in on all issues, I think it's just important to understand that we are not elected and so we have to think hard about you know who are we accountable to and that needs to be something we consider in making those decisions about where we participate and where we don't.
1: And I suppose that complexity gets even deeper when you think about the makeup of your employee base. Uh, For ANZ, for example, we're in, I think, it's 34 markets. I think I saw some numbers that there's more than 120 different races represented here, um, dozens of different religions and things. I would imagine if you tried to say, well, we're acting in a way that our employees want us to act, that's an incredibly diverse base of stakeholders there.
0: It is, and it's something you need to consider when you're making decisions about where you take a stand, when you comment, when you have a view, and when you don't.
1: And one of the other challenges that, um, well, not challenges, one of the other realities of the corporate world that, particularly in the last decade, but in the last couple of years, has started to become more prominent is the role of activist shareholders. Yes. Um, in the past, there used to be sort of roughly two groups. There used to be, um, you know... Green mailers and others who were very aggressive in trying to obtain a financial outcome, and then not-for-profits on the other hand, who were trying to push a um, you know a particular cause, you know, as worthwhile as it may be, but now that sort of activist shareholder base seems to be much broader. You know, we have union. Um, backed super funds or we have pension funds from the US or sovereign funds from you know, northern Europe who would all be considered activist shareholders today.
0: That's right, that's right. So uh, it's changed a lot in the last 10 years I think and I think boards have changed too in their reaction to shareholder activism. I mean to the extent that shareholders can see value in the company that perhaps the board can't see. I suppose the challenges arise perhaps in two areas. One is where Activist shareholders take a short-term view, and obviously, you know, boards are, mu- are taking a much longer-term view. And the other would be, as you said, where uh, they're very issue-specific, and that, of course, means that it's a bit more difficult for boards who are taking a much broader view about the company and its value, and so that again can create issues with activism. Mm.
1: And your your own. Um Board positions do go across uh, not-for-profits, Indigenous rights in Australia, um, the arts community. So when you sit on each of those boards, are you the same person or do you have to sort of take one hat off and become a different person?
0: No, I think you are the same person. Um, The reality is we're all very multifaceted. We have lots of different interests, lots of different passions. Um, the things that I'm involved in in the not-for-profit sector are really passions of mine that I bring to my paid boards as well, um, but clearly when you are considering issues you do need to consider them from the perspective of the shareholders um, of that specific company. So, to that sense, but you are the whole person, I think.
1: And it's interesting because the debate around the the skills mix on on boards is is an ongoing one, but it's typically been, uh, do we have the right number of lawyers, accountants, um, bankers, and CEOs and non-CEOs? Then it moved on to, you know, clearly diversity is a benefit, and there's plenty of research to support that, whether it's gender diversity or cultural diversity that represents where companies operate. But now we're starting to see, well, do boards also need to have representatives of communities or particular stakeholder groups? Do you have a sense of of how you would think about that?
0: Well, I think some of us, so for example, on Coca-Cola Amateur, we have a 30% shareholder in the Coke company and they appoint two directors. So it's not foreign, I think, to us to have people with a significant interest in your company represented on the board. I think it becomes a little more challenging when you're talking about having specific sector interests in the community represented. Um, in each case, it's really a matter of, of what makes sense, and at the end of the day, making sure that when people walk into the boardroom, they're there to act in the best interest of all shareholders, not just a segment.
1: And with, with ANZ um, particularly, We've come through the Royal Commission. Uh, There's been some new board committees structured to look at um, cultural audits and and, um, issues that have arisen not just out of the Royal Commission but have been sort of coming through for some years now. How do you see the the evolution of the ANZ board in terms of whether it's structure or the way you focus your attention or what may need to receive more attention in the future?
0: The ANZ board is a very hard-working board and I think it's... That's only increasing in terms of the time we spend on ANZ business. Um, we have a significant number of committees where a lot of the hard lifting occurs. And as you said, we have a new committee in the Ethics, Environment, Sustainability and Governance Committee. Um, most of the directors go to every committee meeting. so, and, and I think that's a good thing because it means you just become understand exactly what's happening in the business um so i suppose i would say we haven't changed much in the way we operate it's a very collegiate board uh, we're very aligned with management um but i'd say we just will continue to work harder and also be more more aware of the regulatory environment in which we live so it's a matter of trying to balance All of those things that come out of being highly regulated with actually spending enough time on how to grow the organisation.
1: And presumably the golden years of banking as they were a decade ago are not on the horizon, are they?
0: I wouldn't say that. I'd say they're different golden years. Mm. There are huge opportunities available to us. We need to find those and they're different.
1: Good luck in that task and um, thanks very much for spending time with us today. It's been really fascinating. Thanks, Alana. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes On Air. Blue Notes On Air was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin MacLeod.